0: How many of you have been challenged recently by skeptics who say the Bible is not what you think it is, it's full of myths? You know, the Bible is religion, science is where it's at, that's the truth. Uh, They say, look at the prophecies in the Bible. The prophecies in Isaiah, you say, have been fulfilled in the New Testament. Well, don't you know that the book of Isaiah was written after the fact? Have you ever been challenged by that? Have you ever been told that Moses said he wrote, or it's been said that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but he couldn't even write in his day? How can we say that? And on and on it goes, and people don't get into the Bible and find out, try and find out for themselves what it really says. This morning what we want to do is uh, help you to understand what the Bible says and the truth that's in it. Let me just open up on a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we come to you this morning to thank you for this time we have to worship you, to worship you, the creator, and not the creation. And uh, we just thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, We just uh, pray that the message this morning will uh, give confidence to believers who may have doubts about what they believe. And uh, may not really know what the Bible really says. And we also ask you to, through the message, to challenge skeptics who think that the Bible is not truth. We want to show this morning that your Bible is truth, it is unique, and it is your word. We just pray for the, that you would give me the right words to use uh, in this message here. Amen. So, what I want to do this morning is give you seven reasons why the Bible is unique. You know, what we believe is our religion. You know, I believe that the Bible is God's truth. And I believe that it is unique. Uh, As you've probably seen, you can see in your your handout, that uh, there are about 300 different holy books in the world. And if you look to see what's in them, you'll find that the Bible is unique in at least these seven different ways. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to take the time to walk uh, through that. Um, first of all, you know, you have to ask the question, is the Bible really unique? Is, how is it different from some of the other, quote, holy books? Well, I want to look at some of the verses here that I have on the slide here. And uh, you can follow along in your notes uh, as well. You know, the first uh, fill-in you'll see is the you know, the Bible is the Word of God. And we start with that premise. And uh, let's look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. For those of you in Iwana you'll know this verse very well. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Clearly, that is Paul saying this is the Word of God, and it could be used for these purposes. Um, we believe, and the Scripture itself uh, tells us, that God's Word is inspired, it is inerrant, in its original form, and it is authoritative. That's your your next fill in. The Bible is inspired, inerrant, and, and authoritative. So, and we we read uh, in the Second Peter, first uh, uh, chapter one, verse twenty one: "For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God." In other words, God spoke, God prophesied. The authors of the books of the Bible wrote down those prophecies. And as you'll see later, many of them have already been fulfilled. And we'll see the fulfillment of that in the New Testament as we look at that. So how does the Bible get to be that way? Well, there is one author of the Bible, and that is God. Uh, The Spirit has brought his testimony into our hearts. Uh, There are many sound evidences that we can see that God has left for us and convincing proofs that this is God's Word. That's your next fill-in. That the Bible has many sound evidences and convincing proofs. And uh, once we finish here, you'll see that the truth of the Bible and our faith is built on facts. It's not just some myth that somebody wrote. It is fact. And we'll give you... Lots of evidence as we go through that. So, and as a result, we'll see that God's word is trustworthy, and that despite what some unbelievers, skeptics say, you know, you've heard it said, when you come to the church door, leave your mind there, and when you're finished with church service, go back up and pick it up, because you can't really reason uh, your faith. It's just, it's faith. It's not based on fact, and we'll show otherwise. So with that, I'm going to look at seven reasons why we see the Bible as a unique book. And uh, you'll see that it's based on real evidence. And so the first one we want to look at, uh, and this slide here, is direct claims of the Bible. What does the Bible say about it itself? Because if what the Bible says doesn't make sense... um, You know, how how can we believe it? Uh, When I teach a course on apologetics, I always ask them the question, does what you believe to be true match reality? And that's what we're going to look at this morning as well. In other words, what I see out in the world, what I see in creation, what I see in people, uh, the universe, in life, does that reflect what the Bible says? And uh, you'll see it does. It is the Word of God. In the Old Testament, uh, we'll see that there are many references. You know some of these. Uh, Genesis 1-3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God said. That's one of the phrases you'll see over and over again. Thus says the Lord, or the Lord said, The word of the Lord came to me saying, The precepts of the Lord. I put my words in your mouth, says the Lord. So, many times in the Old Testament, and if you count them all, you'll see there are 2,000 references to phrases like that. In other words, God said, and it was so. God said. So, if God is not true, well then, what he says can't be true either. And you'll see that there is truth in what he says. In the New Testament as well, there are also phrases... In First Thessalonians 4 verse 15 for uh, example says, "For this we declare to you, and this is Paul uh, writing, "By a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left unto the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep." So this is a transcendent message coming from uh, the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11:23, Paul writing, "For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you." So we'll see in the New Testament that the authors refer to the Word of God in the Old Testament 40 times in that way. They refer to the Old Testament as the Word of God. So all the authors of the the New Testament take the uh, Old Testament to be God's Word. Um, And if you look at, and I know, People haven't looked at all these other hundreds of holy books. But if you look at those, you won't find any phrase like that. Like This is the word of God. I mean, you look at the Quran, you look at the Book of Mormon, or any of the so-called holy books, they never make references like that. Only the Bible makes a reference uh, to what God said, you know, the scriptures say. So it's a word from the Lord in the Old Testament, and it's a word from the Lord uh, in the New Testament. So there's no other religious book that refers to itself as the Word of God. Okay, next um, a piece of evidence we want to look at is the perfect unity of the Bible. And some of you may know that, well, I'm sure you all know that there's 66 books in the Bible, but you, what you may not know is these, these 66 books were written over a period of 1,500 years how many of you here, if I asked you to write a short story about an accident you saw on the road, would have exactly the same story? You know, and you're doing it in the same time. You know, Many of us can't even get that right. Well, here we have 66 books written by different authors, 40 to be precise. And uh, these are diverse authors. You know, Two of them were kings. There were some priests, physicians, shepherds, fishermen. Even a former Pharisee, a tax collector, statesman, you have it. All from different backgrounds, and yet they write one consistent story. So let's read Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, because this tells a little bit about how the word came to be. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In other words, this is the writer of Hebrews saying that God spoke to us through the prophets in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he also spoke to us through his Son, and, and that is your, your fillings. And God spoke to our fathers by the prophets of the Old Testament, and in those days, he spoke to us by his Son. And that comes from, you know, this few verses that we just read. So we see all this diversity. And if you look at all the players in the Bible, there are about 3,000 different people mentioned by name. Uh, There are almost 1,200 chapters in the Bible, 31,000 verses, uh, 775,000 words. And uh, 3.5 million letters. A lot of stuff in there. Is this all the same? Is this all telling the same story? Yes. The Bible tells one cohesive story that reveals our Creator's love and plan for a relationship with each of us. Speaks of one salvation plan, one people of God, one story of human history, one problem of mankind, one solution for this problem, and one standard for morality, the law, and one design for the family and uh, Jesus is the chief uh, object of this message so the bible speaks with one voice it doesn't contradict itself despite what skeptics may say they say well these two verses say different things well have you checked the context of those two verses if the context is different perhaps you need to look at that uh, verse different so how can we account for such unity in the midst of diversity well there's one author stands be behind the whole book The author has breathed it out, as we saw in 2 Timothy. There's a master architect behind the whole project, one temple of truth. Uh, So the Bible is the word of the living God. The Bible speaks with one voice on every matter that it addresses. So in that uh, 3C, the word of God shows unity in the midst of diversity, all coming from different sources, different writers, yet there's one source and one author of it all. Okay, so let's look at number three then, the reliable transmission of the Bible. And if we look at the uh, books of the Bible, we don't have the originals. So we have uh, what we call extant copies of the books of the Bible that were copied by scribes over the ages. And this is true of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Um, the reliability of, the, of these books that we have in the Bible depends on all the copies saying the same thing. And Dewey, that, that's one thing, the number of copies available. Um, the second thing we look at is the time span between the extant copy, that is the earliest copy that we have, and the original, and I take the book of Isaiah as an example because we're going to use that uh, later on too, uh, written about 700 B.C., um, before the 1900s. The earliest copy of a copy of the book of Isaiah that we had was dated somewhere around 1,000 A.D. You're looking at 1,700 years. Imagine what scribes, what mischief scribes could uh, generate trying to fill in you know, what they thought was the truth. And so that's a long time span. Well, then along came the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard where, what they are. There were scrolls found in uh, Israel, and uh, uh, Qumran. Um, a shepherd boy came up to a cave on, the, on a cliff just outside the Dead Sea, threw, and he, he was looking for his last goat, threw a stone in, and he heard something tingle, something break. So this is you know, 30, 40 feet up. And uh, so he climbed up there, went into the cave, and he came across these jars which contained scrolls of ancient manuscripts. And uh, you'll wonder how could they survive over this long period of time. Because they were dated to be between 100, uh, even some 200 B.C., to roughly 70 A.D., and if you remember your history, 70 A.D. is when the Roman War uh, against the Jews uh, took place. So these were put in, the, in these caves. There are 11 caves there. They found uh, about 40,000 different fragments of uh, manuscripts and um, multiple copies of, of the Old Testament books. And they actually found a complete copy of all the books of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther, at least so far. And so now scholars have uh, extant copies which date all the way back to uh, 100, 150 uh, BC, depending on, on uh, how you date them. Uh, skeptics had said, you remember up front, I said skeptics think well the Book of Isaiah was just written uh, after the events of the New Testament, and that and that's why the fulfillment matches the what was written. Well, now we know for sure that's not true because scholars have compared the earliest copy of the book of Isaiah with all the ones we have now. I mean, they have uh, hundreds of them, obviously, by this point. And they found that there's probably less than 1% that is different in some way. Most of those differences are explained by the fact that the Hebrew language changed over time, as you might imagine. We're looking at, you know, a thousand-year difference. Uh, very slight, not very much. And, yes, there were a few scribal um, um, miscopies, if you will, but none of those have any impact on what we believe to be true. And that's true of all the other books, all the other manuscripts found in the uh, uh, Dead Sea, um, Qumran cave area as well. How about the New Testament? Well, in the case of the New Testament, uh, we have... At this point, about 25,000 copies of different manuscripts of the books of the New Testament. And remember, how you um, evaluate the reliability of the books is you look to see how many copies you have, and do they say the same thing? And the second thing you look at is what's the time between the earliest copy you have and when the author wrote the first one. If it's short it gives you a lot more confidence that it's true. And if they are basically all the same, say the same thing, then it gives you a lot more confidence. Well, in the case of the New Testament, they found a fragment of John's gospel uh, dated to be about 125 A.D. uh, in Egypt. And uh, it is said that John wrote the gospel of John roughly 90 A.D. or so. So you're looking at 35 years difference between the extant copy and the original. And so scholars have gone over all these, and at this point, many scholars will say that we have 99.99% of the originals that we think are fairly you know, reliable at this point. Um, there are also some documents that were written by the early church fathers which we can compare against because they wrote about these books of the Bible uh, as well. So, there is, you know, you talk about the book of Homer or the, uh, you know, other books, ancient books. Anybody question those, that they're true? No, they just take them as, as truth. So, why do they take the New Testament books, which we have now thousands of copies of manuscripts, and say, no, that can't be true, they're just too old. Somebody made errors in copying they don't say that about the book of Homer or the Iliad or, you know, any of that. So this gives us good confidence in the accuracy of what we have. There is no other ancient book which is anywhere close to that accuracy. Okay, then uh, let's move on. Um, let, let me make sure you got the, um, the uh, fill-in on reliable. The greatest manuscripts found are the Dead Sea Scrolls. That really changed the picture for Bible scholars because of all the copies we now have. It gives us a lot of confidence in the truth. The oldest manuscript, which is the book uh, of Isaiah, complete scroll of the book of of Isaiah, about a thousand years earlier than we had one before. And as I said, we have 25,000 New Testament manuscripts with one dated even 35 years after it was written by the author. So it gives us a lot of confidence. Well, what about the unique teachings of the Bible? Well, remember I I said uh, um, skeptics say, look at the prophecies that you quote and that were fulfilled in the New Testament. Uh, Those books were probably written after and doctored to make them fit the prophecies. Well, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's not true. You know, that's not true. And uh, so that gives us a lot more confidence in the prophecies that are in the Bible. You know, you know about the messianic prophecies. I mean, those are the ones that the church brings up all the time when we talk about Jesus and the truth that he has given us. There are other, you know, uh, non-messianic prophecies, and the total prophecies is probably around a 1,000 or so, a 1,000 prophecies. There is no other book that has... Prophecies like that, in fact, no, none of the 300 holy books that we mentioned have any reasonable prophecies in them. Some have general prophecies, but, uh, you know, that could come true. We have 1,000 prophecies. 500 of those have already been fulfilled. So that, that gives us a lot of confidence. And the, the other thing that gives us confidence is archaeology. You know, the archaeology of the Holy Land of uh, Greece and some of the other Bible lands is remarkable, the things that they've found. There are thousands of artifacts that have been found, uh, places that have been uh, found. And, uh, you know, they've all, well, I shouldn't say they. they, many have been verified by archaeology. Uh, So it contains a thousand prophecies, half of them already fulfilled. It covers five centuries of history. You know, the early books of the the Old Testament, including Samuel, which we're covering in Sunday school now, Kings and Chronicles, history of the nation of Israel, uh, five centuries of time. And many of those facts have been verified, and the facts, the places, the people, the kings have been verified by archaeology. So history has confirmed the biblical Uh, Story through archaeology and also through extra-biblical writings. So we we have a lot of uh, um, confidence in that. And what may surprise some people is when it speaks on science, it makes scientific statements that are also true, can be verified to be true. And I'll give you a few examples of that uh, a little later on. And, and that's surprising to people because people said, you know, that's not a book of science. That's just a book of religion. Okay. It's okay for spiritual truths, but uh, we don't take it can be true for when it speaks on other matters than spiritual matters. And uh, we'll show you that that is just not true. And uh, to be honest, the last major point there, it records the sins of leaders. If somebody wrote these books and we're trying to, you know, paint a pretty picture of these patriarchs that lived in the past, or the disciples, Jesus' disciples even, the apostles, would they write the sins of the people in that book? I don't think so. So the Bible is honest in what it says about the lives of the people, and it gives those as an example. So let let me uh, look at uh, Genesis 12, verses 11 to 13. And uh, I think most of you know this. This is um, Abram speaking about his wife. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. So that's a lie. And he was trying to cover his wife and, of course, himself, uh, with that lie. And and if you look at the little deeper, you'll find that th- there is some half truth in this particular saying, but that's not true of some of the other things that uh, we'll see. So it talks about the sins of the people in Deuteronomy, where Moses writes that the people have been rebellious against the Lord from the days that I knew you. So Moses speaking the rebellion of the people, and this shouldn't be. It speaks about the uh, adultery of David in Second Samuel 11, 26, 27. Uh, King David's adultery with, with uh, uh, Bathsheba. And then even the gospel points out the faults of the apostles. And if you look at the last item here on that list, there is, Paul writes about the disorder of, that is in the church itself. Now, you wouldn't expect him to write about that. You know, he is a church leader. Well, why would I bring some of the black marks against the church and put them in this book, which people are going to read? Well, he does. So, just in summary then, you know, we have unique uh, teachings. The Fifty percent of the thousand prophecies have already been fulfilled. History is confirmed by archaeology and extra-biblical writings. Uh, It addresses scientific matters as well as spiritual matters. And it also addresses, as we've seen in some verses here, the history, geography, and prophecy. And it records the sins of the patriarchs and the apostles. Okay, well then let's look at the next unique feature, and that is the historical accuracy of the Bible. And, uh, again, you might think that, well, all these guys, they didn't go to university and get taught. They didn't know how to write stories. They didn't know how to report, you know, what they've seen. And yet what we find is accuracy through archaeology and also through extra-biblical uh, writings. And I'll give you some examples of this. Probably the best one is uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote the, the Gospel According to Luke, and also the Acts of the Apostles, and you'll see that you'll see the very first things he says in the first four verses of Luke one is I used eyewitness reports and I talked to the people that were there. I used the reports of the apostles, the disciples. You know, they, these are people that have seen all this. You know, Luke himself hadn't seen all of it, but he refers to eyewitness reports, and scholars have have said. Um, you know, some of the titles you used for some of those Roman officials, they, they never existed. You know, there's no other record of those kind of titles being used. Um, what about some of the historical events? Are they recorded properly? Well, if scholars have not gone through the, the uh, uh, Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, Paul, or Luke mentions 32 different countries, 54 different cities, 9 different islands, They've all been found to be accurate. There's no mistake in them. And then the titles of the Roman and Greek uh, leaders, were they correct? Yes. Some of them have been now verified by artifacts found in archaeology. I don't believe all of them, but many have, have already found artifacts. They're never going to find artifacts of everything that is mentioned in the Bible. In fact, one of the skeptics I talk with uh, almost on a weekly basis says, well, you haven't found this. You haven't found that. You haven't found the Ark yet. You know, uh, I don't think the Bible is true history. And, and I have to tell him, you know, you're never going to find all the artifacts of all the things that happened in the Bible. You're never going to find Adam's bones or Eve's bones. It's just not going to happen. We may never find the Ark even. But what I to say to him, I have found enough, enough evidence. Through the artifacts, through archaeological finds, to say that I have enough to believe that the word is God's truth. So all of these things, and you know, you can check the geography, you can check the history of the people, and uh, which is confirmed by external uh, writings. What uh, I'll talk a bit more on this at the end. But but if take the Book of Mormon as an example, you know it mentions a lot of different peoples that some of the peoples that came from Israel and uh, relocated to North America. Uh, It talks about the Hill of Cumorah where the gold plates were found. Now, wouldn't you think it's strange? This was written in 1830 A.D. Don't you think it's strange that we haven't found any artifacts which prove what is written in the Book of Mormon? Or the people that they supposedly migrated from in, in Israel way back there's no record of them. You know, the, the neophytes, they never existed. And so even I've seen programs by Mormon scholars, Mormon archaeologists, and they, they are mystified by this too. They agree that there have been no artifacts or archaeological finds which prove the truth of the Book of Mormon. But nevertheless, they, they continue to believe that. And that's why I say, you know, one of the things that we check in apologetics is, that what you believe to be true match reality. Uh, We had a talk on Egyptian chronology here at the Apologetics Forum last month. And some people say, well, the Egyptian pharaohs, you know, they lived long before the flood and all that. Well, it turns out that the pharaohs and the names of those pharaohs are recorded properly. They didn't all rule sequentially. Some of them ruled different parts of the land of Israel or the land of Egypt at the same time. So they ruled at the same time. And so when you crunch up the chronology, you know, scholars are now starting to match up those pharaohs with the time in the Bible as well. There's more work to be done in that, but it just shows you. People have assumptions that the Egyptian secular chronology is true and yet has been shown not to be true. So, um, you know, archaeologists have not found any mistakes in the Bible. It confirms a history recorded in the Bible. And in fact, today, archaeologists, even non-believing archaeologists, use the Bible as a guide because they understand that the Bible does talk about many of the things that they're looking for. And so they use that as a guide as to where to dig. Uh, One example here, the Pool of Bethesda. Archaeologists believe they have found that. Uh, There's a whole bunch of other ones, but we're not going to have time to go through them. But another important one that I do want to mention is the Ebla tablets. Remember I said that skeptics said Moses couldn't even write in his day. How could he write the first five books of the Bible? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah never existed. That's just a myth. Well, 1974, northern Syria, they found these Ebla tablets from the people of Ebla. And uh, that is another amazing find in the 20th century. That and the Dead Sea Scrolls has done a lot to confirm the truth of the books we have. Uh, the time frame of Ebla was a, about a 1,000 years before the time of Moses. Well, if they could write records a 1,000 years before Moses certainly you can believe that Moses could also write. Moses, after all, was trained in the court of the pharaohs, as Paul records in the book of Acts. So he, he knew how to write. And so this these tablets confirm yes, Moses could write. Moreover, these tablets recorded about 5,000 different towns and cities and villages and different places. Five of those that were mentioned um, are the five cities of the plains. Okay. And uh, we we see that in uh, uh, Genesis 14 verse 2. Let's go th- back to that. That they made war with Bera king of Sodom, uh, Bersha king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab king of Adma, and Shemember king of Zeboam, and the king of Zoar; those five cities of the plains are what skeptics said they never exist. We have no record of them. Well, Ebla tablets mention them, and and so again, the other thing that uh, the uh, Ebla tablets confirmed, skeptics said, you know, the, the Hittite people never existed. We have no record outside of the Bible that the Hittite people even existed. Well, again, the Ebla tablets they mentioned the Hittite people, because the Hittite people did live. It turns out that they self-destructed later on, and therefore there's no you know, more recent records. But since then, they found other records of the Hittites. And the Hittites is a people that uh, did exist through history. Okay, the next one. Uh, well, let me see. Um, yeah, so, so the Tab is recorded times 1,000 years before Moses and mentioned 5,000 different cities Five of those being the cities of the plains. And then, as I said, archaeologists, whether they're believers or not, now use the Bible as a guide to where to dig for artifacts and uh, records of history. Now we come to the scientific accuracy of the Bible. And, you know, again, skeptics say the Bible is just a book of religion. It can't be true scientifically. And yet, if the Bible is truth, When it speaks on science, it must speak the truth. So we we come to uh, the very first uh, verse in the Bible, as you see in your notes there, Genesis one one. Before I say that, there's a a cohort of Charles Darwin, Herbert Spencer, and he really promoted evolution and all that, and was an atheist. And uh, he came up with the scientific notion that everything could be explained in terms of five things, and that is space, matter, time, force, and action. Five things. That's scientific. He was given a scientific award for that. Read the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force, created that's action. The heavens, that's space, and the earth. And that's matter. So did Moses get that verse right? I think so. He nailed it. So um, there's just one example uh, of truth in the Bible. Uh, Another one is, um, I'm just going to go briefly through these six things, biblical references to science. You know, before the date of the telescope, you know, we could only see so many stars. And different scientists had, had counted the stars in the sky. And some came to 1,040, some came to 1,026, and some with a, just a few more. But that's what you can see with the naked eye. So they said, well, these Bible verses in Genesis and in Jeremiah, they're, they're just wrong. I mean, they got it wrong. They said the, it is a, the number of stars is innumerable. And it's as great as the number of grains of sand in the sea, uh, on the seashore. And so after the invention of the telescope, people, the scientists determined that, hey, there's a lot more stars out there than I thought there were. And, in fact, uh, I'm sure you haven't seen them all, and we can't see them all, but the telescope, you can see about 100 billion different uh, galaxies. Each galaxy, including our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has about 100 billion stars, and so you multiply the two together and you get 10 to the power of 22 stars in the universe. And somebody went ahead and calculated, or estimated, didn't count them, but estimated the number of grains of sand on the seashore and came up with a number very close to that. How can that be? Yeah, we couldn't see. But now with a telescope, of course, we can see. Um, going further, uh, let's look at... Uh, Isaiah 40 verse 22 It is he who sits above the circle of the earth circle of the earth I thought the earth was flat I thought people thought the earth was flat well that turns out that turns out to be a myth most people in those days didn't think the earth was flat you know they like uh, us to believe that they thought it was flat but I assure you People could see the curve of the water over the horizon. They knew it wasn't flat. And reading this verse here, this is accurate scientifically. You know, you're not going to learn much science from this, but you at least know that that is speaking um, uh, accurately. Uh, you know, like I said, we trust the Bible for truth in spiritual matters. We see it's been accurate in prophecy, or we'll, we'll see more of that, uh, prophecy, prophecy. In geography and history and archaeology, there is also a record of truth in different disciplines of science, and these include astronomy, which we cover the number of stars, uh, geophysics, geology, hydrology, oceanography, meteorology, biology, physics. All of these different disciplines of science, the Bible speaks truth. Um, let's see, the next one is the Earth as. No, not not yet. Uh, Just back to that list of six there. Earth as a sphere, we covered that. Earth is suspended in space. And uh, there's a verse in Job, Job 26, 7. He says, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. So the earth is, is suspended out in space there. Yeah, you know, so we're just spinning around the space. We're just hung out to dry. I mean, there's nothing holding us. There's no rope holding us up. So again, that is an accurate statement. Uh, the fact that the earth suspend or earth rotates, you know, on its, it's, it's spinning on its axis. You know, we know that. And that is also said in that uh, verse. Um, and well actually also in Job 20, 38 verse 14, as you see in your list there. So it's spinning on its axis, and actually you don't feel it. But we're we're actually moving about six hundred thousand miles per hour through space. You know, but that's relative to space. Relative to our own galaxy, it's not quite that bad. And then another one that is remarkable is the hydrological cycle. There's a few verses in Ecclesiastic, Ecclesiastic chapter one, verse, uh, six and seven, where uh, King Solomon. Writes. He says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And if you read those verses, it talks about the hydrological cycle. I mean, it goes from the streams to the sea, evaporates, comes down as rain uh, on the land, and then flows back to the sea. Sometimes it dumps too much rain on certain lands, but nevertheless, it it does circulate. And that's what that verse uh, says in Ecclesiastic. Then the, the last one there, life is in the blood. We go look at that. Leviticus seventeen eleven says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So this is telling us that our life is in that blood. So if you remove blood from your veins, what's going to happen to you? You you won't last very long. Well, you know what they did in um, to George Washington. He had some disease, and so what they did is bled him to get that disease out of his veins, to get the bad blood out. What he eventually died from that procedure. So if he had read or the doctors had read this verse, Leviticus seventeen eleven. They said, if the life is in the blood, we better not remove all his blood. And there are many, actually many, many verses in the Bible which teach, speak about life and uh, biology as we know it today. Some of those things are written anticipating truths that we didn't know at the time. And I give one other example that I don't have on the board here, but uh, and mothers know this. That uh, when you deliver a baby boy, what are you instructed to do? To circumcise. And uh, that is a biblical statement. You know, Moses wrote that in uh, um, the first five books of the Bible. He said, When a male child becomes eight years old, that's when you circumcise him. Now, and why in the eighth day? Well, doctors didn't discover till now, till, well, 100 years ago or so, that the Blood clotting uh, element is at its maximum on day eight, and that the, um, you know, the immune system is also the strongest in the baby on day eight. And doctors know that now. So there's an example of an anticipatory scientific statement in the Bible. So, um, day eight. Why didn't Moses write six or ten or some other number? He got it exactly right. You know, we haven't changed the Bible to change that to eight. That's the way it is. The other thing that people don't realize is that all, um, I shouldn't say all, but most of the disciplines of science which were invented in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century uh, were founded by Bible-believing scientists. You know Newton, Isaac Newton, for example, known as the greatest scientist of all time. Yes, he wrote some very significant books on science, the laws of planetary motion, things like that. And uh, those sciences were established by Bible-believing Christians. People don't know the fact that he was a great scientist. He also wrote books on commentaries of the books of the Bible. In fact, his writings on the commentaries is greater than the writings on the science books. Uh, That's an amazing uh, fact as well. Okay, then the the last item we want to cover here, and that is a prophecy, fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. And I've written or I spoke about this a little bit already. Uh, First of all, the point number two, about 500 or or more of the 1,000 prophecies in the Bible you know, most in the Old Testament, but some in the New Testament as well, have been fulfilled already. And particularly in the prophecies about the Messiah, there are about 300 that have been attributed to the coming of the uh, Messiah. 109 of those have already been fulfilled in his first coming. Um, and you know many of them. And they're covered in the books of uh, uh, Isaiah, the books of Psalms, a lot of prophecy there. And the book of Micah, Malachi, etc., a number of different books of the Old Testament. So we, we can verify that 109 of those have already been fulfilled. From a mathematical probability point of view, if 109 um, were fulfilled exactly in his coming, what do you think the chance of that happening by chance? Yeah, you, know, you can calculate that, and you get huge numbers like. Um, One scientist calculated to be 1 in 10 to the power of 157. Well, anything less than 1 times 10 to the power of 50 is regarded as mathematically impossible. It'll just never happen. And so here we have the probability of Christ coming, fulfilling the prophecies, 1 in 10 to the power of 157, not a chance. Uh, Some skeptics will still say, well... He, he he knew the scriptures and he knew how to fulfill them. And he did that. In fact, some verses in the New Testament said this was done in the fulfillment of this particular prophecy. Yep, that's true. Now, can you pick your place of birth? I don't think so. You know, you can't pick your mother or your father or your place of birth or how long you're going to live or what you're going to do. You, you can't do that. And there's a number of other things which you just cannot pick. So they're not going to just happen by chance. But, so his birthplace was accurate. He sold for 50 um, pieces of silver, forsaken by God. He died but had no bones broken, uh, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, rejected by his own Jew- Jewish brethren, betrayed by a friend. All of those things... You know, have come to pass I'm not going to read all of them but you know they've all come to pass mathematical probability that is zero it just can't happen okay then um, there are other prophecies about them uh, about other things people places nations kings you'll see the prophecies in the Old Testament largely on that well many of those have come to uh, be fulfilled already one that is covered in Ezekiel uh, chapter 26, is the destruction of the city of Tyre. And uh, it turns out that there's a, uh, an old city of Tyre on the shore there, and that's where Tyre used to be, and that has been destroyed exactly the way the Bible predicted in Ezekiel 26. And there's now a causeway between the island there and the mainland, and the fact that the, the rock in the mainland is totally bare, is uh, prophesied. There are about seven different things that are prophesied about the destruction of Tyre, and historians can see that they've all been fulfilled as prophesied. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, there's a, a reference to the, the fact that Cyrus would be king. And, uh, you know, that happened 100 years later after it was written in Isaiah. That's recorded in history. Those are just two of them. Another big one which you know about is the prophecies on uh, the Jews. You know, the, the fact that the Jews would be dispersed. Moses wrote about that in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. And, and eventually, you know, after the, uh, the Roman Jewish War, 70 AD, the nation of Israel was dispersed. And then it was prophesied that they would be regathered. And uh, you know today that the nation of Israel has been reestablished. And the Jews have have regathered in that state of Israel. So that again is a big prophecy that has been fulfilled. I often say, do you know of Jews in different lands you know that are you know maintain their heritage? Yeah, we all do. I mean there's Russian Jews, the Ethiopian Jews, um, you know, European Jews, all those, those countries they, they refer to as Jews, they keep their culture. Uh, as some of you know, we immigrated from uh, Holland, and uh, you know, I'm known as of Dutch descent. My kids barely know that anymore. The third, fourth generation, they'll just lose all that. They'll just be another American. And uh, you know, they lose that. Even though we keep up the, some of the culture, they lose that identity. The Jews never, never done that. And they've been regathered, uh, just like the Bible uh,
1: uh,
0: foretells. So the prophecy, the probability of these prophecies coming to pass, you know, that many prophecies by chance, mathematically impossible, never happened. The number is just very too small. Okay, the the other thing I want to mention, I don't have up here, but I want to come back to part of Isaiah 61 and explain what that means in terms of prophecy and archaeology. Let's read the first two verses of that. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, number one, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So that the thing to, to notice in this these two verses is, is that the Messiah is to come to do two things. One is to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Proclaim the good news, the gospel message. Second, he is to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And, you know, that's vengeance and tribulation. Has that happened yet? No. So, first of all, you have to... Understand, these two verses talk about one person doing two things at different times. Now, we know that after Jesus proclaimed the favorable year of the Lord, he was crucified. Now, if the resurrection didn't happen, you know, how could he have done number two? He couldn't have done it. And, the, and even the Jewish scholars, you know, before the time of Jesus, um, understood this as being referring to the Messiah. They've changed their story since because they don't want to accept that. But the other point to, to um, understand is these verses were written by the prophet Isaiah, 700 um, B.C. And now remember the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a copy of the book of Isaiah written, or not written, but copied, um, 100 to 150 B.C. before Christ's coming. Those words haven't changed. Now, let's look at the next piece of scripture, uh, where Jesus goes into the synagogue, uh, Luke 4, starting at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. So, to to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That is the first part of the prophecy in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And so you see that... When Christ was referring to that part of the Old Testament, he sat down. And I, I believe, do we have the next verse as well? Yeah. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What scripture has been fulfilled? Only the first part. You know, 61 verses 1 and 2b. The last part of, of verse 2 has not yet been fulfilled. So this is a, you know, an accurate fulfillment of that prophecy. So we can be assured that you know, we can have confidence in the prophecies. Um, just going through the fill-in. Prophecy is pre-written history, pre-written history. We find the messianic prophecy in Isaiah, Psalms, Micah, Malachi, a few others. There are more prophecies about kings, cities, nations, than there are about messianic prophecies. And, you know, some have been fulfilled, quite a large number actually, but many more yet to be fulfilled. So the probability of all these prophecies coming to pass by chance, mathematically, is zero, nil, nada, whatever word you want to use. It just can't happen by chance. So then let's uh, uh, summarize here in the next slide. Um, We see that the Bible is indeed unique. I mean, there's nothing that matches that. Uh, Just to cover, let's say, a few more words about prophecy and, and refer to some other holy books. You know, what's the test of a true prophet? Well, Moses states that in Deuteronomy. If he doesn't tell the truth, that's a false prophet. And so anybody that doesn't, whose prophecies are not fulfilled, just ignore them. They're f- false. Nostradamus. Everybody heard of Nostradamus? 16th century philosopher who made a lot of prophecies. Well, if you look at him closely, some of them, many of them, are very general. You know, he will be killed. Well, who? When? What? You yeah, know, no details. Uh, so most of them are, are very vague and general. And many others are false. You know, you don't hear about the false ones, but many of them were false. Prophecies in other religious books, there is not one valid prophecy in any other holy book. And this includes, you know, Buddha, Confucius, Hindu, Vedu, uh, Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon, and the Quran. There are no valid Prophecy in those books. There is one general prophecy which people point to in the Quran, saying that Muhammad will return to Mecca. Well, he did go to, back to Mecca because that's where he came from. So it's it's a general prophecy which doesn't carry any weight really, I mean, and that's all. The Book of Mormon, um, and actually the Mormon Mormon Journal of Discourse, written by Smith the founder of Mormonism, and Young, Brigham Young, who was the second leader of Mormonism. One of the statements they made is that there are inhabitants on the moon and on the sun. They're about six feet tall. They live to a thousand years. And, uh, you know, nobody's gone there to find any. The sun you can't get to, the moon you could check if you... Really wanted to, but nothing's been found. So there's a false prophecy. And there's other prophecies that Joseph Smith made that didn't come to be. Brigham Young, uh, it was predicted that he would become president, you know, after he was the leader of the Mormons. Did that happen? Nope, didn't happen. Jehovah Witnesses, you know, one of the other cults. Uh, The founder, Russell, predicted the return of Christ. So he predicted he would return again in 1914. Didn't happen. So he predicted it would come in 1916. Didn't happen. Predicted 1918. Didn't happen. Second leader of the book of uh, Jehovah's Witness, Rutherford, he predicted that Christ would return in 1925. Didn't happen. He predicted then that it would, he would return in 1940. Didn't happen. You know, these guys are false prophets. You can't believe what they say. The Bible, on the other hand, you know, 27% of the Bible is actually prophecy. And, uh, you know, that's a lot. So prophecy is very important to the Bible. That is one of its unique characteristics. The fact that it is, um, yes, it speaks about spiritual truth, but its truth is also confirmed by prophecy, which we just discussed, by history, by geography, by archaeology. Its statements on science are true. I showed you just a few of them. There are literally more than a 100 scientific statements which can be shown to be true, to to match what we know today. Some of the things that were said on science, uh, scientists may not have realized until much later that they weren't uh, true. But we now know uh, that they are true. The Bible is uh, clear and honest in that it covers the patriarchs, it covers the disciples with all of their warts. Yeah, you know, if you were going to write a book that appealed to people, you would not put those warts in there, but they did. Uh, the Bible, as we can see, has been accurately covered, copied over time. The Bible is God's word, and I would submit there's no other book like the Bible. So it claims to be the, the word of God. It is special revelation. We have been given a general revelation here in this world, and if God is who he says he is, the general and special revelation needs to match. Um, the two must agree. I've showed you many sound evidence and convincing proofs. And uh, now it's, it's um, you know, what do you do with that truth? Um, you either believe it or you don't. And as Paul writes, you know, we all are to be good Bereans. You know, don't listen to what I said here. Maybe I got some of the facts wrong. You should be a Berean and check it out for yourself, whether I'm speaking the truth, whether the Bible is speaking the truth. There are many things which I haven't covered today, which I would love to cover because of my science background. And that is the greatest hoax, myth, if you will, that scientists uh, portray is the myth of evolution. And uh, that's a biggie to believers and I can show you from a science point of view that there is no good science behind evolution. Evolution never happened in the past. It's not happening now. And it can't happen in the future. Mathematical probabilities are impossible. There are statements made in today's paper which make scientific statements. You probably don't remember them, but March 17 last year, scientists came out and said, you know, we see the background radiation, those gravitation waves, that is proof that the Big Bang is true. So that's what people believed. Well, this week, uh, they finally came out and said, no, that didn't prove the Big Bang after all. Because those gravitational waves that we saw could have been caused by a number of different causes. And it didn't happen because of the Big Bang. So you have to be very careful that you don't are taken in by what the media reports. Because much of what they report is just wrong. They're just the scientists who speak those truths, because they want to believe that's true, but it's not true. So what do you do with the Bible truth? Well, like I said, you need to be a Berean, and if you really believe the Bible is true, you need to live it as well. If we do nothing with that truth, then what's the point? Uh, And we need to be cognizant of the fact that we are really ambassadors for Jesus, and for God, you know, we are the ambassadors. Make sure we reflect what they believe and what the Bible says. And I realize there may be some skeptics in the audience, too, who don't believe everything I said, and that's fine. Look, Check it out for yourself. Um, but if you can't get an answer, ask a, a um, Bible believer for what the answer is. Or I'm, I'm open to answering questions as well, but you need to investigate for yourself whether... People are speaking the truth or not, so it is after all the most important question you can ask for your because it's all about your eternal destiny, and that's the most important question of life. So with that, let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this uh, this morning to thank you for the time we had to look at your word and look at the truth of it. We thank you for it. we thank you for the record that it leaves us. We thank you also for the evidence that you have left for us to uh, see the truth of your word, and we thank you for that. May all that we do be according to what you have told us, and may this give us confidence in the truth of your word, and may the message this morning also cause those who have questions, who have doubts, or who are just out-and-out skeptics to ask the hard questions, to investigate for themselves, and come to your truth. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me, um, I'm going to close now. And I want to just read a poem that I came across that somebody wrote about the Bible. And I think you'll appreciate this. The Bible. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is open and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is the grand subject, our good is Its design and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its content. And so with that, I close the message and remind you that this evening we have uh, Dr. Tom Hoyle coming. He speaks on creation issues. This evening he's going to speak on that topic, uh, God, Jefferson, and the founding of our nation. And uh, like um, Alan said, you probably learn a lot of history from that that you never knew because the media doesn't report it, the textbooks don't write about it. This is something you really want to uh, hear. Thank you for your attention.